Our scripture this morning is from John 11 and 12, 11, 45 through 12, 11. If you would please stand for the reading of scripture. John eleven forty five. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also together into one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. May God add his richest blessing to the reading of this portion of his holy word. Will you pray with me please? Again our Father we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've spoken to us. We thank you that you have given us your Son, the Word made flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. And so we pray that by the power of your Spirit, that through your Word we would see the Word made flesh high and lifted up, that we would hear his voice, 
and hearing him that we would know him and follow him and offer ourselves to him promptly and sincerely in spite of the inability and sin of the preacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. Loving Jesus in a world that rejects him. The passage before us begins and ends with conspiracies. After Jesus raises Lazarus, the Jewish council convenes, and they decide Jesus has to die. And consequently, they begin to plot his demise. Then, at the end of the passage, the council is again plotting. This time, they're plotting the murder of Lazarus himself. And so the way it was, is laid out was strongly suggest that John has a line of thought running between the plot to kill Jesus and the plot to kill Lazarus. Between these two diabolical plots is the greatest display of affection towards Jesus recorded in the Gospels. Lazarus' sister Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus with imported perfume from India that would cost the average worker a year's pay. This is one of the few passages, perhaps the only passage, in the Gospel of John in which Jesus is not the main focus of the text. Now don't misunderstand. Jesus is the main focus of everything in the Bible. It's just that in this particular passage... There's more emphasis on how people are responding to Jesus. But here John is developing a point he made in his opening statement. John 1, verse 11 and 12. You remember it says that Jesus the Word, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But to as many as did receive Him, to them gave He power to become the children of God. See, the world largely rejects Jesus. He comes into the world that he made, and the world rejects him, will not receive him. But there are those who do receive him, and through him become the children of God. That's the principle. The world rejects Jesus, but some receive him and become the true children of God. That's the principle. But here John shows us a picture of that principle playing out in real life. The world is rejecting Jesus, plotting to kill him and to destroy the evidence in his favor. And yet, framed by these wicked schemes, here's a woman in the middle who loves Jesus. John wants us to be those who receive him and receive life in his name and become the children of God. He wants us to love Jesus in a world that rejects him. And so he turns to Mary of Bethany for our encouragement. Now let's look at it. First in this passage, you see Jesus, the inconvenience. Jesus, the inconvenience. Look at verse 45 of chapter 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. 
But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now you see, the concern of the council, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, they're concerned that the Romans would take away their place and nation. Their fear was that if too much enthusiasm was stirred up around Jesus, the Romans would perceive Judea as a threat. Those people are out of control down there. And they would impose some sort of martial law and sack the leadership. I'm certainly no expert on Roman history, but they allowed subjugated provinces in the Roman Empire some level of self-governance, but they kept it pretty tight. So Judea was governed by the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council. Not Roman, a Jewish council governed Judea, and they're meeting here in this passage. And the chief executive and the chief justice, for that matter, it's all one branch government, the Sanhedrin, it was run by the high priest. Now the high priest was appointed by the Roman governor. Caiaphas, Joseph Caiaphas, the high priest here in John 11, had been appointed by the Roman prefect Valerius Gratus in the year 18 A.D. He ran it, the Jews ran it, but they had to be appointed by the Romans. So in a Roman world, these men assembled here in this council are doing as well as could possibly be expected. They enjoy as much favor from Rome as one could imagine. In their hands is the most power of any non-Roman entity. But now Jesus is getting so popular, and his popularity has reached fever pitch since he raised Lazarus from the dead, that the Romans may think, well, Caiaphas, his boys let things get out of control down there. We better take over. And so they determine we've got to get rid of Jesus before the Romans take away our place, that is the temple, and our nation. Now look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand it. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. You see, Caiaphas, he makes it sound like uh, their concern is for the people, protecting the people, but we know better than that. They don't want to lose their power. They're in a good place. The system is working for them. They've adapted to the Roman Empire. Now we know Jesus did not cause them to lose power. Even when Jesus rose from the dead and the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost and the movement began to sweep from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria across the entire Roman Empire. When the, when the temple with the whole city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman general Titus in the Jewish war in 70 AD, it had nothing to do with this great movement. 
that began with the resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. Jesus and Christianity had nothing to do with the fall of Jerusalem. But the Sanhedrin here perceived in their minds that this excitement around Jesus could be their undoing, so they had to get rid of him. To them, Jesus is simply an inconvenience. A man's been raised from the dead. They don't deny it. You see, at the end of verse 47, it says this man, the, the, the council says this man performs many signs. They don't say Jesus is doing tricks. They say he performs signs, real miracles. They don't question the authenticity of his work, raising the dead. But it doesn't matter to them. It doesn't matter to them that Jesus can raise the dead. All that matters to them is their place and their nation. Anything else, including the raising of a dead man, is simply an inconvenience. That's how it is when you're preoccupied with something. Everything else is merely an inconvenience. And so Jesus is an inconvenience and he must go. You see Jesus, the inconvenience. Secondly, in this passage, you see Jesus, the beloved. Chapter 12, look at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now here's Mary. Mary who is as far from the Sanhedrin as the east is from the west. If they were preoccupied with their power to the point of seeing the resurrection of Lazarus as an inconvenience, Mary is preoccupied with Jesus raising her brother to the point that he is all that matters to her. So she anoints him with this exquisite perfume from India, and she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, there are several accounts, similar accounts of a woman anointing Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and here in John. This is the same incident here in John 12 as what's recorded in Matthew and Mark. They say she anointed his head. John says his feet, but remember, it says the amount here. It says a pound of ointment. In our measurement, the, the Roman uh, pound, about 11 ounces. That'd be, that's, that's a lot of perfume. That's enough for his head and his feet. But there's another story in Luke 7. And there a notorious woman anoints Jesus' feet and weeps onto his feet. She grovels at his feet and weeps at his feet and she lets down her hair and washes his feet, mops his feet with her hair and the tears she shed onto his feet. Now that was clearly a separate incident from this one here in John 12. But that woman in Luke 7, she was a sinful woman Known to be so, 
She came to Jesus for forgiveness. She did that. She washed his feet with her hair and her tears and anointed him because she loved him. She loved him, he said, because he forgave her sins, though there were many and great and notorious. You know, it was widely known that this had happened. I expect that Mary here is being a bit of a copycat. Mary's not that kind of woman. She's upper crust. Judas said that they could have sold the perfume for 300 denarii. Denarii was a day's wage. So that perfume she anointed Jesus with was worth the average year's pay. In today's terms, that was a forty or $50,000 bottle of perfume. This woman was well off. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus were good people. They were a good family. They were friends of Jesus. You know, not all Jesus' friends were tax collectors and sinners. Some of them were respectable people. And this family was very respectable. But word travels. It's widely known that a sinful woman wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. And this respectable upper crust woman, Mary, has heard of it. And she says, in effect, by her actions, I need Jesus as much as that sinful woman does. And so in this world of darkness, this world that will not come to Jesus, here is a person who receives him. And John, through her story, shows us several elements of truly coming to Jesus, receiving him and loving him. And first, John shows us through Mary that, that loving Jesus and truly receiving him, it goes against the grain. The structures of power in society are plotting Jesus' death while Mary lavishes her affection on him. The contrast could not be any sharper. Now, in the mercy of God, there have been times in which societal power structures have been friendly towards Jesus, but not usually. It runs against the grain. Second, he shows us that true love to Jesus is costly. Mary poured out a year's pay in a minute's time on Jesus. But now here's the point. She wanted to do that. She wanted to pour out $50,000 in our terms worth of perfume on Jesus in just a few moments. Truly receiving Jesus, truly loving Him, it makes you want to give Him your best. You want to give Him your best? Your time? Your money? Paul says not to give grudgingly. God loves a cheerful giver. Mary here is the example of 
the cheerful giver. She's glad to give Jesus the best she can give him. I don't know at this point what all she understands about the cross to come, but she understands who he is, and she knows she needs him. He has been good to her. I know a lady who years ago had bad cancer, and she went to a very aggressive oncologist, and he attacked her cancer as hard as he could. Treatments were brutal on her, but it worked. She'd been in remission for 12, 15 years now. You know, you bring up, you mention that oncologist. I know him and them. If you mention his name to that woman and her husband and their eyes light up. Some mention of his name. They love that man. They adore that doctor because he treated her effectively. And here Jesus had raised Mary's brother from the dead. She adores him. Now, a third thing this shows us about true faith and love for Jesus is that it tends to draw opposition. Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because it was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, obviously, she's going against the grain of society, of the council, of the power structure out there. But you see here she's drawing opposition from within the circle of Jesus' disciples. Yes, we know Judas was the, the traitor, but he was on the inside. you really get consumed with genuine love for Jesus, you will draw opposition, maybe out in the world, but maybe inside the church. I have a friend, now a minister in ARP Church. One point he was a seminary student in another Presbyterian denomination. I won't say which one. He was examined by the Presbyterian of that denomination. At some point in the questions, he answered that he believed in a substitutionary atonement. That Jesus, he believed Jesus bore our sins and shed his blood to satisfy the wrath of God in our place. That presbytery told him that he needed to think about that some more. He told him he didn't need to think about it anymore. They told him they didn't believe that anymore in that presbytery and that denomination. He said he could not change his views. And they told him to leave. They kicked him out because he believed in the blood of Jesus. It was our game. I'm glad we got him. But true love to Jesus may well draw opposition in the church. You see Jesus the inconvenience, Jesus the beloved. Thirdly, in this passage, you see Jesus the threat. Look at verse 9, chapter 12, verse 9. 
when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now the second conspiracy. The mere existence of Lazarus is causing people to, it says, to go away and believe in Jesus. They were going to the other side. They were crossing over to Jesus because of Lazarus. Some time has passed since the last meeting of the council. Jesus is now more than an inconvenience. They now perceive him as an absolute threat. The thing they feared is now coming to pass, or so they think. Everybody is now talking about Jesus. The world is going after Jesus. Word is bound to get back to Rome. And we're all going to be sacked because we've lost control. And so they determine we must kill Lazarus. obvious application here if Jesus changes your life your life and existence will be a testimony and the world that finds him to be a threat will find you to be a threat but there's another thing all the evidence in the world will not convince someone to come to Jesus if he doesn't want to. You remember there was another Lazarus in Luke 16. He was a poor man, miserable, covered in sores, hoping to eat a crumb that would fall from the rich man's table. And then one night, both Lazarus and the rich man died. It says the rich man opened his eyes in hell but then some of the most precious words in all of Scripture, it says of Lazarus that the angels came and carried his soul to the bosom of Abraham. Some say that's a parable. I don't think it's a parable myself. I think it really happened. But this was a different Lazarus. But you remember what the rich man said at the end? He called out from hell and he asked Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to warn his brothers. He said, I got five brothers that need to repent. Send, send Lazarus back from the dead. Sort of like Jacob Marley came to Scrooge on Christmas Eve and warned him. You remember what Abraham said to the rich man? He said, if they will not believe Moses and the prophets, that is the scripture, they got a Bible. If they won't believe the Bible, neither will they believe if one rises from the dead. And this, the other Lazarus, he did rise from the dead. And they will not believe. You remember when Atticus made his closing statement in To Kill a Mockingbird, he said that Mayella, quote, must destroy the evidence of her offense. 
And what was the evidence of her offense? Tom Robinson, a human being. She must put Tom Robinson away from her for he was to her a daily reminder of what she did. And the high council, when confronted with the evidence, decided that the evidence must be destroyed. Lazarus, a human being, he has to die for he was to the whole nation a daily reminder of what Jesus had done. You see Jesus the inconvenience, Jesus the beloved, Jesus the threat, and fourthly and finally in this passage you see Jesus the sacrifice. Go back to chapter 11 and look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Caiaphas spoke as a cynic. He said, better off just kill Jesus then all of us lose our situation. It's better that one man die than for us to lose our nation. And John tells us Caiaphas had no idea what it was really saying. One man would die for the nation, but not just for that nation. But one man would die together into one, all the children of God scattered abroad throughout the world. Caiaphas the high priest prophesied but he did not know it. He accomplished the will of God. God rules over everything even sin the late Scottish preacher Mr. William Still of Aberdeen who has had an influence on this particular church for the last 20 years used to say that God uses sin sinlessly. I don't know how he does it. But you can read it. Acts 2 and verse 22 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They did a horrible, a wicked and lawless thing when they killed Jesus. The worst crime and sin ever committed on the face of the earth, but it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God for our salvation. You see the same thing at work in the text with Judas as with Caiaphas. He is going to betray Jesus into the hands of his killers and in so doing accomplish the purpose of God for our salvation. But even Mary, though she is doing good and not evil, is unaware of the full meaning of what she's doing. Chapter 12, look at verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. She's anointing him for his burial. 
though she most likely does not realize it. It's the most expensive thing she's got, this perfume. She wants to give Jesus the best thing she has. And she's anointing him for his burial. But all this shows us that God is orchestrating something above and beyond the mind and power of man. God is preparing the sacrifice. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The world is inconvenienced by Him. The world is threatened by Him. Even some in His church oppose Him. He came to His own and His own received Him not, but some did. And to them... He gave the right to become the children of God. And here John says that through his death, Jesus is gathering into one the true children of God from the whole world. And you remember what Jesus said to the Jews in John 8, 42? If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God. And so in the middle of these plots to kill Jesus and his witness, we see the true child of God, Mary of Bethany, who loves Jesus. Do you? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.